First Timothy chapter three. Here's the funny thing. I uh, <clears throat> I typically try to find out what music we're going to be listening to, and then I put it on the a playlist and repeat it all weekend long, uh, so that I can be ready for what we're singing. Uh, it just helps get your soul ready. So. Um, all weekend, uh, Asher and I about a dozen times listened to a different song, Christ is Risen, because I got the song wrong. Uh, had I gotten the song right, I'd probably been a little bit more prepared for that. Um, but uh, instead, I listened to a dozen times another song. Uh, and uh, anyway, that, that probably has something to do with it. So anyway, we are in First Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we're looking at verse 8. Um, and uh, in particular, we're going to be looking at the office, a deacon. So let's, let's uh, read this together. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as a deacon if they prove themselves blameless. Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, it's a privilege to gather around Your Word as Your church. And Lord, we believe that Your Word spoken is what created everything around us. And Lord, we believe in the power of the Bible as the Word of God to recreate us as the people of God to make for Yourself Your church. And Lord, I firmly believe that the church is the hope of this world. It is the sending ground of the Gospel. It is the place that you put your children in order that they might grow as they yearn and wait for their Savior's reappearing. And Lord, as we wait for, for the opportunity to go home, to be with God. And so, Lord, I pray that You would use Your Word this morning to strengthen Your church. And God, I ask that You would help us to be eminently faithful to Your Word, to trust it, to trust it in the simplest things, to believe it. And so, God, I pray this morning that by Your Spirit, Your Word would go forth and it would bring much fruit. Only You can do that. And so we bank on You this morning, Lord. In Your name we pray. Amen. If you recall, we've been walking through 1 Timothy. Uh, we walked through uh, chapter 1 and then chapter 2. Uh, and the end of chapter 2, we looked at the, uh, the, the role distinctions between uh, uh, men and women in the church. And then we got to the beginning of chapter 3. We went through the first seven verses and we looked at the office of pastors and elders, or pastor elders, or pass up elders, overseers. Remember, we said those are all uh, one office. Those different words represent one office. And now this morning, uh, we are going to look at the office of deacon. Um, the office of deacon. And I, I want to begin with a disclaimer. Um, 
Here's, here's the disclaimers. Many of you know uh, the Bible was not written in English. Um, the, it was not written in English because when the Bible was fully written, the English language is, was not even around. Uh, so that's why the Bible wasn't written in English. Instead, the, the Old Testament of the Bible is written in Hebrew. That was a common language of the, uh, of the Jewish people or the Hebrew people. And the New Testament was written in Greek. That's the common language at the time that the New Testament was put together. So the, uh, the actual... Old manuscripts that we have, and we have lots of them, they show us the Hebrew and the Old Testament and the Greek and the New Testament. Um, one of the most important outcomes of the Protestant Reformation was the fact that the, the Bible was printed, put out, published in the common language of the people around them. And many men and women gave their lives to make that happen. I mean, we're talking people beheaded, burned on stakes, hung. Uh, they, they gave their lives for the opportunity to get the Bible in the language of the people. And I'm grateful for that. So, as a result, today we have an English translation of the Bible. An English translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew to English and an English translation of the New Testament from Greek to English. So in this room, I guarantee you, if you take your Bible and look probably on the spine of your Bible, you're going to see what translation you're using, what version. And I would imagine in this room there are lots of different ones. In fact, just out of curiosity, it helps me to just know... How many of you all this morning, if you look at Smyrna Bible, are using a King James Bible? Got it? Got it? Okay. So we got King, how about New King James? Got it? Okay. How about um, New American Standard or American Standard? Got it? How about uh, New International Version? NIV? Okay. Uh, how many uh, Holman Christian Standard? That just put a lot of money into that, and it's oh well, all right. Uh, Life would be very disappointed. They worked very hard. Okay, they put a lot of money in that. All right, uh, the ESV. All right, so we got. You notice across this room, lots of different translations. That's great, absolutely great. Um, you you need to be very uh, thankful for what you hold in your hand. Every one of those was not translated. None of those was translated by one person. There's a committee that sits down for all of these and works years and years to work on the translation. And I'm very grateful for them for doing that. Now I say all of that is a long apology for the fact that this morning I am going to use talk some about the Greek um, and 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 how it flows in here. I say that is a word of precaution, though. Uh, I'm really tentative uh, to do that, and here's why. I think an overuse of talking about the Hebrew and the Greek from the pulpit can be unnecessary, and I think it can be dangerous. What I never want you to think is that if you're sitting reading your English Bible, that you can't read the Word of God very well. If you've never had a Greek class or a Hebrew class, please hear me clearly. You've been given a wonderful gift in this tra- in the translation that you have, and you can trust it and you can read the Bible very, very well. I do not want you or any, anyone here to lose confidence in what you're holding. 
you are holding the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. So there's going to be a couple words that we're going to talk about, and we're going to talk about how the translators uh, differ on that. Um, but I do not want you to lose confidence um, in in the Word. Now, don't get me wrong, there are going to be a lot of preachers, uh, if they heard that, would definitely disagree with me on that, but that's fine. Uh, we have to have those who are wrong, so we can have those who are right. Okay, I'm just playing. All right, um, anyway, so the uh, office of deacon, um, the, the office of deacon, I want us to first look at the nature and the duties of the office of deacon. Verse 8, deacons likewise. Well, right there, we get all we need to know about the nature and the duties of the office of deacon. You're saying, wait, that doesn't seem like a whole lot of information. It's a ton. It's a ton of information. The word deacon is not an English word. It's a Greek word. The word deacon is a Greek word. It's not an English word. It's actually what we call a loan word. Uh, we, it's, a loan word is when one language borrows a word from another language and doesn't translate it, but just assimilates it into their vocabulary. Let me give you an example. The word rodeo. That's not an English word. But when I say, I went to a rodeo, you all know what I'm talking about, right? If you're in Texas, you'd really know what I'm talking about. Uh, so the word rodeo is a Spanish word, and it means to go around. Well, we don't typically mean it like that, right? Uh, we don't say, you know, I, I rodeoed and rodeoed uh, at the mall the other day. We don't, we don't say that. You would be very freaked out if somebody said that. You took a bull to the mall, it's not a good idea, right? Um, no, it's a loan word. Uh, another one is burrito. That's my favorite because... Uh, how many of you all like burritos? Alright, I do too. Yeah, it means little donkey. Not real sure. Um, always thought it was chicken, but anyway, um, it means little donkey. It's a loan word. So it's a word that means something in another language. We just completely took it and made it whatever we wanted, right? Well, honestly, at times, deacon is like that for us because the interesting thing about the word deacon is when that word is used all across the New Testament. I mean, hundreds of times you see the word deacon. But the actual, if you look in your English Bible, you're only going to see the word deacon there about probably three times. Uh, well, that's because most of the times we fully translate it. Here's what I mean. The word deacon means a servant. That's exactly what it means. It means a servant. And sometimes it's a verb, to deacon, which would mean to serve. Right? Let me give you an example of this. In Mark chapter 10, verse 43 very, very helpful verse. A very, very important verse about understanding the, the Christian life. Whoever uh, would be great among you must be servant of all. Uh, so not, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Well, that servant, that's the word deacon. It's exactly what Jesus said there. It's the exact same word that you're seeing here in verse 8. So if you want to be great, then be deacon. Now there he doesn't mean the office though of deacon. He's just saying be a servant. And then Jesus himself, just right after it, incredibly says, and guess what guys, if you think that's weird, the whole idea of Christianity rests on it. Because Jesus says, for even the Son of Man, he's talking about himself there, came not to be served, not to be deaconed, but to deacon... And to give his life as a ransom for me and for many. Do you see? 
It's a word that means service. It's a beautiful word and it has a beautiful history inside of the Christian church. And so, unlike the office of pastor or elder, there are not explicit duties laid out for deacons. We get that with with the pastor or elder, but we don't get that with deacons. It, and that's because it is aimed at serving. Acts chapter 6. Very helpful. Acts chapter 6. It may or may not be the very first deacons. There's some uh, question about that. But there's no doubt across Christian history that this has served as the prototype of what deacons stand for. And that has been used to understand why the, the position ever came into being. And you remember there at the beginning, so in very, this is starts at verse 2 up there, but remember in verse 1 we're told that the Greek-speaking widows were complaining because they were not being taken care of. And this is what we're told. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to deacon tables. To serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among your, among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who will be, uh, who we will appoint to the duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so deacons serve there the tangible needs of the body. And they serve, and, and, and this could be, for example, taking care of the building of the church, helping make sure people have transportation to church. Um, it could be making sure that widows are cared for and their homes are cared for. That is the role of deacon. It's an important role. We should also note, it's very interesting that Paul explains the office of deacon after explaining the office of pastor elder. And I say that because the key is he puts them together. Paul sees an important connection between the two offices and how they serve the church. These two offices need to work close together. You can see this. This is one of the only other times we get the word deacon translated in, in, in where the English actually just puts deacon instead of servants. In Philippians 1.1, Paul, writing to the church of Philippians, or to Philippi, he says this, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, that's the office of pastor, elders, overseers, and who? The deacons. Uh, so that when he's, when he wants to write to the church and he wants to get after those who are in charge of taking care of the needs of the people, he's going to talk to two offices. He's going to talk to the pastors and he's going to talk to the deacons. And so in Acts 6, we see that the role of the deacons was to free up the uh, uh, apostles or those servants there was to free up the apostles for the preaching um, of the word for prayer, for the ministering of the word and for prayer. And that is how it has been understood across the ages. There is a, a distinct uh, relationship between the office of the pastors and the office of deacons. The office of the deacons work to help the pastors be able to spend time in prayer and in uh Preaching and teaching, and the deacons uh, do the important help with the important role of serving the body. 
One can put it this way, and I think it's helpful. The primary focus of the deacons is the physical needs of the people. And the primary focus of the pastors is the, or are the spiritual needs of the people. Now, you'd have to be careful with that bifurcation because you don't want to say that there's not every, you know, every physical need has some spiritual part to it and every spiritual need has some physical part to it. I get that. But when it's all said and done, a simple kind of a way to understand it is the deacons are aimed at taking care of the physical needs of the church primarily. And the, and the pastors are aimed at primarily taking care of the spiritual needs of the church. And so, together, they take care of God's people. They take care of, of, of their physical and their spiritual needs all the time, obviously being given uh, help by the Spirit. Now, we're getting ready to spend a long time on the list of qualifications for deacons. And I think a question that uh, is probably going to come, if it's not now, it would be maybe towards the end, is this. Why is this? there such a big list of qualifications if deacons are, are focused mostly on the physical needs of the congregation? I mean, if, if they're focused on the physical needs, why, why do you need all of these qualifications? Well, I think there's at least four reasons. Um, there's definitely more, but at least four. First, and this is important, it is to remind us that God is not chiefly concerned with our gifts and the way that we carry them out as much as He's concerned with our character. Character matters first and foremost. I love what Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, the church does not need brilliant personalities but faithful servants of Jesus and to the brethren. It's a beautiful way to put it. Second, because any time the deacon, a member is served by a deacon, the deacon represents the entire church. And the deacon represents the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. So when deacon or deacon arranges transportation for a shut-in to get to church, that deacon stands as a representative of the whole body to say, we love you, we're here for you, and we're getting you to church. But more importantly, and what a beautiful picture, the deacon stands as a representative of Jesus Christ Himself to say, I love you and I'm going to get you to be with my people today. And so certainly we want these people, given what they represent, to be people of strong character. Third, because the body is counting on the deacons to be dependable. Uh, like the pastors, the deacons are ultimately accountable to God and certainly accountable to the church. And let's just be real frank. If you've been around church life anywhere long, you realize that the issue of accountability is often lacking in church life. That's just the truth of it. It's a sad truth, but it is a truth. Deacons are ones who stand up who are people with strong character and they say to the congregation, if I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And therefore, you know, if the deacon's name is on it, it will get done because these are godly people. I think that is very, very important. Otherwise, accountability will suffer. And the biggest reason, lastly, deacons must be humble. 
Deacons must be humble. Look, let's just be honest. They're not going to get the, the recognition of the pastors. They're not going to be up publicly teaching. They're not going to be the ones all, taking the, the role of supporting in prayer the congregation. They're not going to get the recognition. They are likely, most of them will likely never be paid for what they're doing. I think deacons are kind of like offensive linemen. When I was on a football team, I wouldn't say I played football because that requires some playing time, but I was on a football team and in practice I played offensive line. And what I learned was the offensive linemen, your number never gets called unless you mess up, right? I never heard anybody say good job. Now that was probably because I wasn't very good. But the other reason, uh, the other thing I saw is none of the other offensive linemen got told that either. The only thing I heard is, hey man, why did you hold? Or hey, why did you let them cream our quarterback, right? You're only going to get your number called when you mess up. In many ways, that's the life of the deacon. They are the engine of the church. They keep it going. And the only time... Some of you all are mechanics. You look at your engines more often. I only look at my engine when there's a problem. Now, I can't do anything because I know nothing. So I open up the hood and go, hmm, right? Um, and then there's a process of going to look like an idiot before the mechanic. But that's it. You don't, I don't care about the engine until it stops working. That's really the truth of the deacons. And these need to be humble men. That's why spiritual maturity matters. One of the biggest misnomers about the Christian walk is that people who are proud are spiritual people. Hear me straight. Hear Christ straight when He said it in Mark 10.43 that if you want to be great, you'll be the servant of all. The mark of maturity in a Christian life is humility. And that's why God wants spiritual people in this position. Alright, so that's both the nature and the duties of the office. Now let's jump into the qualifications of the office. The rest of verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, and not greedy for dishonest gain. It must be dignified. That word is it could also be serious. These need to be serious-minded people. That doesn't mean that they can't have fun and you can't joke with them, but it does mean they take their job in, in office seriously, and it also means the congregation has no problem taking them seriously. And they are not double-tongued people. They cannot stand slander. They'll do anything they can to guard the body from slander. They're not double-tongued. They're not addicted to, 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 to drink. They are not drunkards. That does not in any way characterize the life of someone fit to be a deacon. And, and they're not seeking to get ahead in dishonest ways. They trust God. They're not trying to cheat anybody. They have a good reputation because of that. So they're not greedy people. That's what Paul says. And then he says, Going on, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I love how he put this. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This goes so well with our Sunday school lesson this morning. And look in there in 1 Corinthians when Paul says that, that the wisdom of God is foolishness to men. What, am I, what do I mean? Well, Paul, when he's saying the mystery of the faith, here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. It's really neat. He's saying these people better be able to take a mystery 
And they better be able to hold it. He doesn't say it's any less of a mystery. It's a mystery. But they better be able to look at it and go, and I believe everything about it. I believe it. And they can do it with a clear conscience. They don't, they don't have to kind of wink and nod and cross their fingers behind their back. They go, it's a mystery. And I get it. Folks, our faith is mysterious. It is. I mean, think about it. I talked to a girl this week, a young woman um, who uh, was a believer. She did not grow up around church at all. And she told me, when I started going to church and I heard the Word preached, it took me weeks and weeks and weeks to get over the fact that I was the preacher kept calling me bad. I never thought of myself that way. That's mysterious to her. But by the grace of God, the Spirit opened up her eyes and she looked at herself and she said, I am a wicked person. I I have done things that are outside the will of God and I think things that I shouldn't think and I am one who deserves the wrath of God. And this is where it even gets more mysterious. And God Himself has taken on human flesh identified with broken sinners and went to the cross and He Himself felt the wrath of God. It's a mystery. And yet a deacon looks at it and goes, that's right. It's really mysterious. But I believe every word of it and it stands as the linchpin for my life. That's what a deacon does. Amazing when you think about the mystery of the Gospel for us, isn't it? That's A deacon looks at it and says, got it. And then he says, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they uh, prove themselves blameless. So they need to be tested first. Now it's interesting, unlike the qualifications for an elder, he doesn't exclude a recent convert. Remember in, in the uh, qualifications for an elder, he says a recent convert, they can't be an elder. But for the deacons, he doesn't exclude a recent convert. But he does say they cannot be folks who are unexamined. They need to be tested. And I think that's why we have a Yoke Fellow program. We have an opportunity to, to allow people to be tested I also think it's interesting because testing really comes back to the, to the fact of can they hold uh, their faith with a clear conscience. Isn't it true that the more we're tested, the more, the more the authenticity of our faith is tested? The harder things we walk through, the more often we're at, we have to look at our faith and go, really? Do I really hold to that? And that's what he's saying. A deacon should be one who is tested. Alright, next part. Uh, Verse 11, their wives, likewise, and he's going to go on, must be dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things. Okay, stay with me. We're going to slow down because this is really important. Um, this That phrase, their wives, has caused translators' headaches for generations. Um, let me explain. Depending on which of the English versions that you have, that's going to be translated differently. Now, I'm reading out of the ESV and it translates it as their wives. But if, you, if you're in the King James Version, New King James Version, or the NIV, you also have it translated their wives. If you're in the Holman... Wait, none of us are in the Holman, so move on. Uh, the, see, I knew the hand-holding would be a, uh, would be a lot uh, 
That would be a lot of help. All right. If you're in the American Standard or the Revised Standard or the New American Standard, uh, then yours does not say their wives. Yours says women. So some say their wives and some say women. Okay. So, what's going on? Well, I want to walk through this slowly um, to make sure we catch it. I ask that you please not zone out. So, if you need a nudge buddy, this is the time to get one. Turn to your neighbor and say, you have the right to crack my ribs if I fall asleep. No, okay, maybe not crack my ribs. But you at least have the right to wake me up, alright? Um, I, I, hope, I hope it won't be that boring that you'll be tempted, but I understand. Alright, here's the deal. Everything centers on one word. It's the Greek word gunaikos. Uh, now, don't worry. Don't be intimidated about word. You know that word because we use it in medicine all the time. Women go to a doctor called a gynecologist, one who studies women. The word gunaikos just means woman. That's where we get the word gynecology from. Together? Cool. All right. So the word gynecos just means woman. Uh, it literally means woman. The word there, there's two words at the beginning before he gets on to the qualification. One is likewise and one is gynecos. So the question comes, well, if it means women, then why do some translations translate it as wives or their, or their wives? First, let me say, I don't think the translations that translate this way are out to lunch. I don't think they're just making something up that's crazy. Um, here's why. There is no Greek word for wife. Let me say it again. There is no Greek word for wife. So, for example, in Ephesians 5, when Paul talks about um, husbands love your wives, if you go literal on that, he's saying husbands love your gunakos, your women. Well, it sounds pretty odd for us to say husbands love your women, Right? Instead, it sounds a lot better to just say, we have a word for wife, so husbands love your wives. That makes sense. So it's not outside the scope to translate it that way. Yet, in all of the other place where it's tra- places where it's translated as wives, it's usually in a clear context of marriage, such as Ephesians 5, or also the, the parallel passages in Colossians. Or when Christ talks about divorce and remarriage in the Gospels, uh, then we get this. That makes sense. Or it will be preceded by a possessive, such as you or there. Again, it makes sense. If you see their women or your women, then chances are he's talking about wives. Uh, they're not just possessing random women. Got it? Okay. All that said, i got to tell you, after much looking at this, I don't think wives is the best way to translate this because this passage is not about marriage. There's not a context here like it is in Ephesians and Colossians that tells us this is about marriage. There's also uh, not any possessive pronoun there. So the word there, if your translation, like mine, has the word there, it's not there. It, it was inserted. Um, so there, it, the word, the only word there is the word women. So it's not like he's saying they're women. Then it would be clear we would translate it their wives. Okay. 
Nudge buddy time. Make sure you're with me, okay? I, I beg you not to fall asleep during this part. Because wrong. You might hear me saying the wrong thing, and then tomatoes might fly, and nothing could shame me worse than be hit by a tomato. All right. So, how should it be translated? Well, I think it should be translated the way that Gunakos is translated everywhere else in the in, in the New Testament, where there's not a context of marriage and there's not a possessive. It should be translated women. So I think the New American Standard and the American Standard Version and the Revised Standard Version have it right. When they say, likewise, women, and then they go on with what it says. So, what does this mean? Please, stay with me. I believe the most straightforward and faithful way to read this text is that Paul is given us a list of qualifications for women deacons. The whole passage is about deacons. If the whole passage is about deacons and he turned around and says, likewise women, then the most straightforward way to read that is that he is saying, likewise women deacons. Let me give you an example. Let's say I said this about police officers. The police officers must be hardworking, courageous, smart, wise, and well-fit. Likewise, women must be hardworking, courageous, smart, wise, and well-fit. Well, who would you think I would be talking about? The women police officers. That's the most straightforward way to read it. And I think that's exactly what we need to do here. You would not think that I was talking about the wives of the male police officers. Um, so I think it should be translated, what likewise, they're women. Now that said, let me give you a couple more reasons why. Please stay with me. The word likewise is interesting. We see it in one other place. We say in verse 11, but remember we started with it in verse 8. Deacons likewise. Well, why does that matter? Because Paul sees himself as going from one office, the office of pastor. He then tells us likewise. He goes into the office of deacons. So he knows he's switching to a different group of people and he uses likewise. It makes sense now that he would switch to a different group of people and use likewise here before talking about the women deacons. Otherwise, he could just keep on going and we would assume then, if he, especially if they put it there, there, that we would understand it would be the wives. Also, note that the qualifications in this in, in verse 8 are the same as those in verse 11. He, he is just repeating himself. So we've got a slide here that will show you those parallel, verse 8 and verse 11. Great. Verse 8. Dignified. Verse 11, dignified. Verse 8, not double-tongued. Verse 11, not a slanderer. Um, verse 8, not addicted to too much wine. Verse 11, sober-minded. Verse 8, not greedy. Verse 11, faithful in all things. They're the same things. It's the same qualifications given. So it seems that he's. it would make no sense to just turn around and say this about their wives if he's already said this about them. But it makes good sense if he's saying this about uh, the men deacons that he expects the exact same thing out of the women deacons. Even a stronger reason, I think a very strong reason. It makes no sense to me that Paul would give qualifications for the wives of deacons and give no qualifications for the wives of pastors' elders. Let me say it again. If you look at, or say it a different way, if you look at verses 1 through 7, you look at the parallel passage in chapter, in Titus about the qualifications of overseers, you will not see there anything about the qualifications for their wives. It's not there. 
Well, it seems very odd and strange to me that he would give qualifications for the deacons' wives, but not give qualifications for the pastor's elders. And yet another very strong reason to think that he's talking about women deacons is because there seems to be clear evidence in the text of the Bible that there were women deacons. Let me show you. Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Please nobody run out yet. Romans chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, that's how it's translated, the word there, you probably already guessed it as what? Deacon. Of the church at Centurion that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, help her in whatever she may need for you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. In other words, she's taking care of us. And in particular, she took care of our physical needs. So here we see the word deacon about a woman, clearly a woman, he calls her sister, um, and he says, of the church. He doesn't just say in century. So she's not just a servant in century. She's actually of the church. That sounds like an office. So it sounds like a woman deacon. So it seems to indicate uh, that, there are women, that there are women deacons there. If you look at the early church fathers, I took another look at them this week. Multiple early church fathers talk about there being women deacons. You say, well, what about Baptist? That's a good Baptist question. You know you're Baptist when you go, ah, oh, what about Baptist, right? Uh, well, um, Baptist, uh, the second president of the Southern Baptist Convention, I found this from him, R.B.C. Howell from the state of Tennessee wrote, Take all the passages together, and I think it will be difficult for us to resist the conclusion that the Word of God authorizes, and in some senses, certainly by implication, enjoins the appointment of women deacons or deaconesses in the church of Christ. Women deacons, therefore, are everywhere as necessary as they were in the days of the apostle. The very next president, the third president of the SBC says there, this is J.R. Graves, also from Tennessee, but they did not like each other, but that's another story. There is no doubt in the minds of biblical and church scholars that the apostolic churches, that in the apostolic churches, women occupied the office of the deaconship. Therefore, there is no good reason why saintly women not, should not fill the office of deacon today in most churches. Okay, so there you go. Seen in the Scriptures, you've seen it in church history, you've actually heard it straight from Southern Baptists. So, fair enough. Some of you are saying, now wait a second. We're a conservative church, and I thought conservative churches didn't have women deacons. That's a fair point. It's a very fair point. Well, stick with me. Recall that we saw in chapter 2, in chapter 2 we saw that there are distinct roles for men and women, and there in chapter 2, and we were very plain about what it says there. It says that a woman cannot serve in a role where there's authority or teaching of men. It's very clear in the text. And we said we cannot budge from that. We would be wrong to do so. Let me put it another way. No matter what you think of verse 11, there it simply is true. You will not find any verse in the Scripture that explicitly says a woman shall not serve as a pastor or an elder. And you also will not find one that says a woman shall not serve as a deacon. An explicit verse. Everything sits on 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, he tells us that a woman cannot have a position of authority or teach men. And so the question comes down to this. What office is it or offices are there 
where the uh, qual- the duties of the office are authority and teaching of men. And I think it's really clear that there's nothing in this passage that says there's anything about the duties of a deacon that says they need to have authority or that they need to teach men. But I think it's very, very clear in the previous passage of the elder, they are to be exercising authority and they must teach. He actually says you can't even ordain them as such if they don't have, if they don't have the ability to teach. And therefore, it seems that the office of deacon uh, is open to women. Now, listen, if the office of deacon in a church, a specific church, carries any any authority in the office, or if it requires the ability to teach, then I would say a woman deacon in that church is right out. It's outside the bounds of Scriptures. But if... um, that was smart. The guys up front uh, just moved right to the summary. Um, that, that'll, that'll learn me. All right, um, so here's a summary statement of all of this. As long as the office of deacon is understood as an office of service, it is permissible to have women serve as deacons. Yet it is not mandatory at each church, and each church is allowed to make the decision. So what am I saying? As I look at the Word of God, You entrust me to look at it and say, Tim, search it and be honest with us and tell us what do you think it says. And I'm doing that. I'm looking at it and telling you, i got to be honest, I don't see anything in here that would keep a woman from serving as a deacon. As long as the office is, is faithfully understood as not carrying authority or teaching. That said, it also doesn't mandate it. I would be happy, I'd be just fine for the rest of my life if we never had women deacons. That would not bother me. It's not like I've got a horse to ride on this. It would be fine. We could still be faithful to the Scriptures. But it is also true that it is permissible and each church is allowed to decide that. How's that? Is that clear? Alright, if not, sit at my table at the love feast and after I feed Asher, we can have a long talk. Um, so anyway, I do ask that you not mishear what I'm saying. I'm not saying we have to do that. I am saying it's permissible and I think that's the most faithful way to read the text. Alright. Um, man, lucky for you that they skipped what they did. That saved you about a page. Uh, Alright, so um, verse, uh, uh, tw- uh, verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife and manage their children in their house, own households well. Well, now Paul is going to turn his attention specifically on the men deacons because of the fact that men have a spiritual role if they were married and if they have children. There is an issue of qualification. That's what I'm saying. The Scriptures are clear that the head of the house is to be the man. If any man is not the head of a house, he is not faithful unto Christ and therefore not fit to serve in an office of the church. If he cannot... uh, uh, rule his children well or lead his children well or parent well, then he's also not fit according to the Scripture. So if he doesn't give a rip about what happens at home and he says, I really don't care what the kids do and I really uh, will just let my wife do whatever she wants. I have no desire to show spiritual authority. I have no desire to teach in this household and show an example. Then he's not fit. So again, if you remember last time, we dealt a long time with the phrase husband of one wife. 
So this time, it's going to be real easy. I'm going to say, remember last time? Uh, remember last time we said this does not mean that a person is excluded if they're single. It also does not mean that they are necessarily excluded if they are divorced. Um, and it does mean that they are excluded if they're polygamist. It also seems to indicate that it, it, that a man must be, not seems to, it does indicate that a man must be one who is faithful unto his one wife. So if a man is married, Paul is saying, he must be faithful unto that because his marriage counts. And also, he must manage their children in their own household well. He must take care of them and manage them well. All right. Told you that would be a whole lot easier uh, because the last time. All right, verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons, this is so nice, so beautiful. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great, great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Beautiful summary, Paul. So there's a certain sense to where you go, so let me get this straight. Deacons are like the engine of the church. They don't get a whole lot of uh, publicity and a whole lot of thanks a lot of times. They're essential to the life of the church. And without them, there would be big trouble. So why would you want to do that? And Paul seems to assume that. And he gives us a beautiful reasoning. Paul-like reasoning. For those who, it's so neat the way the language goes here, for those who serve well as deacons, I love this, he could, he's saying, for those who deacon well as deacons, those who do the job right, one, they gain a good standing for themselves. So let's follow this logic. If you serve well, you're gonna get a good standing. Now, wait a second. That sounds really familiar. Do you remember in Mark 10 when the sons of thunder came to Jesus and said, really they sent their mom to do the dirty work, but how can we be great? And Jesus answered, we just looked at it, right? If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, what will you do? You serve. That's the exact logic Paul's talking about. If you want a good standing, serve. That's how you become great in the kingdom of God. So he's looking at deacons and saying, I can tell you, if you've got a healthy church, you will have a plethora of deacons. A plethora of them. And they will be the lifeblood and the engine of the church. They will be making sure things run. They'll be making sure things are together. They'll be making sure the needs are taken care of. And these are humble, godly people. And they are saying, I've got a reward that's a whole lot better than anything here. That's beautiful. That's why the spiritual qualifications count. Because nobody's going to do this job right if they don't get what it means to be a follower of Christ and humbly pursue it. And then I like what he says here. They will gain a good standing for themselves and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The word confidence is with faith. So again, he's playing on words with this. He's saying they will gain great with faith in the faith 
that is in Christ Jesus. So what is he after? Here's what he's saying. It's awesome. He's saying, do you want your faith to grow? Do you want it to be strong? Do you want to, to have a firmer grasp of what it means to believe upon Jesus? Then serve. And serve well. Deacons will be people that you can look at and say, they get what it means to be a follower of Christ. They don't care about the recognition. They don't want all the hoopla. They just want to serve God every moment they can. And they're waiting to heaven to get their reward. It's beautiful. And the truth is, that should be for all of us. But the church cares enough about its members to set aside certain people and say, they are going to take care of that. They're going to be accountable unto God. They are going to take care of it. They're going to be accountable unto God. And I tell you, the truth is, if you look at the, uh, the history of many churches, it actually is the failure to have deacons that has caused the most problems. Let me be clear. There have been many churches that have had deacons, but those deacons turned into something like a board of directors. Now you show me, I beg you, in the passage we just read where you get a board of directors out of that. I beg you to show it to me. It's not there. So they have a board of directors, and then they've got a pastor, sometimes pastors. But who's in charge of taking care of the physical needs of the congregation? Sometimes nobody. Or sometimes they've got a pastor or pastors who are running themselves in the ground, having to probably in some ways ignore the ministry of the Word and of prayer and of vision and of faith that they're supposed to call to because it's not getting done. I'm telling you, the Scriptures have given us a beautiful prescription of how it should work. Get some godly men who God has gifted for vision and teaching and prayer, and you tell them, you go focus on it. And you pray that God would lead us well. And then you have a group of servants who say, we got this. We're going to make sure it's taken care of. Unto God, we're going to make sure it's taken care of because we love Christ and we want to serve His bride. And there's nothing sweeter. You tell me if there's a better prescription for church leadership and organization than that. There's not. It's clearly given to us in the Word of God. Let's pray. God, I thank You for Your Word. It really is amazing. I've never stopped. Every sermon, I walk away from preparation and go, unreal. Unbelievable. I thank You that You are making Your church. You're doing it in Your own way. And God, be honest, You're doing it in Your own time. But You're doing it. And I thank You for that. I do pray that You would use Your Word to bless us and to teach us. And now, God, as we have the incredible opportunity to gather as Your people around the table, I pray that You would use that to instill in us faith to remind us of the great Christ that we serve, the risen Savior that is ours. Lord, I pray that You would do that by Your Spirit in our lives. We ask these things to You. Amen.